Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at Podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, July 21st, 2019, and this is show number 741. Would you believe that Steve and I are about to be gone yet again? Well, first we've got MacStock this weekend in Chicago, which should be a total blast. I love MacStock. By the way, tickets are still available. I should be working on my presentation pretty soon, don't you think? Anyway, we're going to be gone Friday through Monday. So I'm going to produce a show this coming Thursday, the 25th. Not quite sure how yet I'm going to manage to pull this off because, like I said, I got to work on my presentation, but it's going to happen. But that means there will be no live no silicast on Sunday, July 28th. I sure hope the live audience is listening right now. No live show next Sunday. Anyway, we get back from Chicago on Monday and then we turn around and jump on a plane to Canada on Wednesday. We're taking the kids, uh, all of our kids, including our grandson Forbes, to a lake near Vancouver for a whole week. I didn't have the heart to even suggest Barter Alistair take over the show after having just done it. So I'm going to attempt to produce the show from Canada. Now, this is an experiment, and I'm counting on the Airbnb Wi-Fi for this, so wish me luck. Now, this also means there will be no live show on Sunday, August 4th, either. By now, the live audience has definitely stopped paying attention to me, so hopefully someone will tell them that the next live show is on Sunday, August 11th. Now, this is where you come in. I really, really, truly do need your help to pull off this show while I'm in Canada. And uh, so here's here's what I'm thinking. Think about the gadgets you use and the software you you use, and write a, and record a review for me. See, that's all it takes. I would really appreciate that. Let me give you some ideas of what you could talk about. Do you use a password manager? How did you decide which one you were going to use? On what devices do you use it? What kind of challenges did you face in implementing it? Do you feel you're getting the full use out of the tool? Or do you think you have a ways to go? You could tell us about that. Do you have any success or failure stories about trying to convince friends and family members to use a password manager? There's a whole lot of meat on those bones. Here's another one. If you write a lot, what writing tools do you use? Do you have a favorite editor that maybe we haven't ever heard of? Or maybe just text editor notepad works for you. Why is that? Do you write on iOS or Mac or Windows or all of them? Why did you choose the tool you chose? Here's another idea. What do you hear me talk about on the show week after week that you totally disagree with? What's that thing you've been yelling at your device about when I've been talking? A different point of view can be really interesting, as long as it's done with love, of course. Do you have a gadget that you love or that drives you crazy? Write about why you love or dislike it so much. I hope these ideas stimulate your brain. If you've not recorded with uh, for me before, write to me directly so we can chat about the options for you. To be honest, if you got an iPhone, the built-in mic is pretty darn good. I'd need these recordings from you by Wednesday, the 30th of July. If you're positive you're going to record for us, please shoot me a note so I can rest a bit easier knowing that it's coming. Thank you so much in advance for the help. Well, I took the weekend off from Chit Chat Across the Pond to celebrate Forbes' birthday, but I've got one in the can ready to go. I'm going to push it out next week or maybe the week after. We're on a short break from Programming by Stealth with the next installment coming out on August 10th. I got to tell you, it's a mess around here, but we sure are having a lot of fun. Let's start the show with a recording from none other than Steve Sheridan, my partner in crime, and Kevin's wingman. Allison and I were fortunate enough to be able to view another total solar eclipse, this time from a vineyard in a small town called Vicuña in Chile. 
We traveled to Chile as part of a UCLA alumni group tour, and viewing the solar eclipse was one of the highlights of this tour. We arrived in Vicuña just before sunrise, about seven hours before the eclipse was to begin, so we wondered if there would be any shelter from being out in the elements all day. When we arrived and saw what the UCLA alumni group had arranged for us, our concerns were immediately dispelled. They had set up a large white tent with tables, tablecloths, and chairs so we could get off our feet and out of the sun if we needed a break. They also used this area to serve a fantastic lunch before the eclipse and a fine dinner afterward. They did it upright. As it turns out, other than the meals, we didn't spend much time in the tent since there were several other activities prior to the eclipse that kept us busy. The weather in Vicuña that day was marvelous for viewing an eclipse. There were no clouds, temps were in the low 70s, and the wind was moderate. More about that later. This eclipse was scheduled to occur relatively late in the day in Vicuña, with totality ending at 4.41 p.m. and sunset less than 40 minutes later. This was Allison and my third viewing and recording of a total solar eclipse. I shot video of the prior two eclipses, in 2012 off the coast of Australia and in 2017 in Oregon, and was prepared to shoot this one as well. You can read about our experiences of photographing and video recording the Great American Eclipse from Oregon in the blog post in the show notes from 2017. Much of the preparation and execution of recording this year's eclipse is similar to how I recorded the 2017 eclipse, although there were some differences that I'll note. As it was for the 2017 eclipse, my goal was to capture this eclipse on video without being distracted from viewing the event directly, and I was fairly successful at accomplishing that goal. To record this eclipse, I used two cameras, a Panasonic HC-V770 camcorder and a GoPro Hero 5 Black. I used the camcorder to capture close-up video of the eclipse sun, taking advantage of the camera's 1080p resolution, 20 times optical zoom, and image stabilization. I used the GoPro to record wide-angle shots of the audience and their surroundings as they watch the eclipse unfold. Preparation is key for successfully recording a total solar eclipse. An important aspect of recording any long-duration event is to have a stable base for your camera. Well before the eclipse began, I secured my GoPro to a tall post in the vineyard using a small Joby Gorillapod with flexible legs and positioned it to face the audience as they viewed the eclipse. I mounted my camcorder to a Manfrotto tripod and positioned it sufficiently far from the audience that I would avoid the unfortunate experience of someone stepping into the camera's field of view while I was recording. I also hung a metal thermos full of water to the center post of the tripod for extra stability. I'm glad I did this because there was more wind during this eclipse than the prior eclipses we experienced. Even with a stable tripod, the camcorder was buffeted slightly by the wind, and this caused a bit of jitter during the close-up of the sun, but not too much. A tricky aspect of recording any celestial body for a period of time, particularly when zoomed up, is accounting for and centering that body since it will travel across the video frame. There's a trade-off here since if you zoom in too much, the sun will travel through the camera's field of view before the eclipse is over. But if you zoom back too much you lose some detail of the eclipse sun. My goal was to record the sun starting a couple minutes before totality began and ending a couple minutes after totality concluded with the lens zoomed up as far as possible and without the sun traveling out of the camera's frame. 
Also, I did not want to reposition the camera or change its settings during the recording. Shooting it this way allowed me to get the best resolution of the eclipse sun without losing any of its image as it traveled across the sky. One of the changes to recording this total eclipse from the prior two eclipses was my camera settings. This time around, I wanted to keep my camera's exposure settings fixed to achieve some effects I missed in the other eclipses. My goal for the GoPro shot was to capture the audience's reaction to the sun as it entered totality, but this time to also show how quickly the surrounding area darkens due to the eclipse. Using auto exposure on the GoPro would automatically lighten up the darkening scene, completely negating the effect I was looking for, so I set the GoPro to properly expose during daylight and fixed this setting. In recording the prior two eclipses, I left my camcorder in auto exposure mode. This achieves an effect where the corona surrounding the totally eclipsed sun shows very brightly. You can see the sun's bright corona in the photo Allison took that I've included in the blog post. However, a very bright corona swamps out the subtle details of the dimmer solar prominences that I wanted to pick up. A solar prominence is a bright, gaseous feature extending outward from the sun's surface, often orange or red in color and shaped in a loop. For the eclipse close-up using the camcorder, my goal was to capture more detail of the prominences that are often visible during a total solar eclipse. So like the GoPro, I set the camcorder to properly expose the fully lighted sun, with a solar filter applied of course, and fixed this setting. One of the convenient aspects of recording an eclipse is that you know precisely, down to the second, when the eclipse will occur and where in the sky it will appear. Totality for this eclipse started at 4.38 and 34 seconds p.m. local and lasted for 2 minutes and 25 seconds, with an eclipse midpoint time of 4.39 and 46 seconds p.m. At that time, the sun would be only 13 degrees above the horizon, thus my concern about people potentially stepping in front of my camera as I was recording. I was able to roughly set my camcorder's azimuth position for the eclipse midpoint using the Compass app and its elevation angle using the Level app on my iPhone. Since I wanted to record a couple minutes before and after totality, I needed the sun to stay in the camera frame as it traveled across the sky for about a six and a half minute interval, during which time I would not reposition the camera or change its settings. Prior to the eclipse, I adjusted the zoom using the partially eclipsed sun to ensure the sun would appear fully in the upper right of the video frame and travel across for six and a half minutes to the lower left of the frame. Then, at three minutes, 15 seconds before the midpoint of the eclipse, which is about half of the six and a half minute sun travel time, and with the zoom at the same setting, I positioned the nearly eclipsed sun to appear in the upper right of the video frame, started the recording, and didn't touch the camera other than to remove and reattach the solar filter. Of course, I used the alarm on my Apple Watch to let me know when to reposition the camera and start the recording. This process worked fairly well, although the sun was a bit farther down in the frame than I would have liked, but I was successful in capturing a zoomed-up eclipse sun with all of its detail during totality and the special moments before and after totality. Another important aspect of recording a solar eclipse is protecting your camera and your eyes from direct sunlight. I used a Hoya ND100000 solar filter to protect the camcorder sensor. I removed the solar filter a few seconds before totality began and reattached it a few seconds after totality concluded. 
Removing and reattaching the solar filter is the only time that I touch the camcorder while recording the eclipse. This is a screw-on filter which can be somewhat cumbersome to remove and reattach and can result in some camera jitter. To keep the removal and attachment times as brief as possible, I partially unscrewed the filter prior to the recording so that only a half turn was sufficient for removing the filter. Likewise, I only used a half turn to reattach the filter. In order to capture what it was like to view the eclipse and achieve all of the effects I was looking for, I used three video clips I shot from the two cameras and edited them together. First, the audience as they view the eclipse prior totality. Second, the eclipse itself as it enters, transitions through, and exits totality. And finally, the partially eclipsed sun as it sets on the horizon. For the period leading up to totality, I cut between the eclipse itself and the audience viewing the eclipse with focus on the audience just as totality approaches, and focus on the sun as totality is achieved. During the scene showing the audience, you can see moving shadow bands across the ground, which we had not seen during our prior two eclipses. Shadow bands appear as alternating light and dark bands that undulate in parallel on the ground. The bands are caused by the narrow slit of light from the solar crescent being refracted by turbulent air in the atmosphere. It's not clear why we hadn't observed this effect during our prior two eclipses, but I suspect we were just too awestruck by the eclipse itself to notice anything happening on the ground. I mentioned earlier that I attempted to achieve a couple of different effects by fixing my camera's exposure settings. I was pleased to see that both effects were achieved. You can see the vineyard and the grounds surrounding the audience dim rapidly as totality approaches and you can see the near total darkness falling on the audience as their reaction to the sun entering totality swells. With this view, you really get a sense of how wondrous the sight is by the whoops and hollers of the audience as totality begins. I've included an audio clip of our group's reaction just as the sun passes through the diamond ring phase, and we all witness the wonder of a total eclipse with our own eyes. I compressed the following 2 minute 25 second period of totality by a factor of 5 to 1 so you can see the fully eclipsed sun traveling across the sky. With a fixed exposure for this zoom shot, the corona was a bit dim, but the three red solar prominences were clearly visible in the lower left quadrant of the eclipsed sun. During an eclipse, there are two spectacularly brilliant moments right before totality begins and after totality ends. This occurs when the moon is about to fully cover the sun, leaving a ring, the sun's corona, surrounding the moon, highlighted by a very bright but small spot of the still exposed sun. And this occurs again on the other side of the eclipse when the sun just exits from full totality. For obvious reasons, this effect is called the diamond ring, and it's a sight to behold. Since the diamond ring happens quickly, I don't use time-lapse, but rather real-time video during this phase to relish every moment. I think music and its precise timing with key events in a video play an important role in increasing the viewer's interest. But it's also important not to use music during certain times. 
To ensure the audience's reaction to the eclipse was the central focus leading up to totality, I used only the background audio from the audience recorded by the GoPro and camcorder with no music. As the eclipse enters totality, I wanted to shift focus from the audience to the sun, so I gradually lowered the audience audio track and faded in a suitably ethereal instrumental song, which ends as the eclipse concludes. I mentioned that the total eclipse occurred only about 40 minutes before sunset. This gave me the opportunity to capture another somewhat rare event, a partially eclipsed sun setting over a not-so-distant mountain. Again, I wanted focus on the sun, so I muted the video's audio track and added in an instrumental song which I've included here as background music. All in all, I'm pretty happy with how the video turned out. One of the advantages of shooting a solar eclipse, or any event, with a video camera is that if anything unusual and sudden happens, you'll likely capture it. Well, just as the partially eclipsed sun was setting, a remarkable sight in its own right, a hawk happened to fly in front of the setting sun. In the blog post, I show you this photo where three natural events needed to coincide for this sight to be witnessed. In summary, planning and preparation are key to successfully recording a total solar eclipse. I'm thankful that Allison and I were able to travel to Chile and view this rare event, and I'm very pleased that everything went well. I'm also pretty confident that this will not be our last solar eclipse viewing experience. Well, thank you so much for doing that, Steve. That was really, really cool. Now, Steve didn't explicitly say so, but all of the videos he talks about are in the blog post that he wrote. I think he's really outdone himself on these, and learning how he does them makes them even more interesting to me. I have to confess that the audience reaction part is my favorite part. Then again, there's that bird in front of the uh, in front of the sun. Ah, it's all awesome. Now, I can't resist the temptation to add one more thing to his explanation of the way he did his recording this time. You know, he spoke at length about the importance of preparation, like how he put his tripod well out of the way so that no one could walk in front of his camera and obscure his video of the eclipsing sun. Now, there needs to be a word for preparation that you can do to do something after the fact, because that's a part that he's kind of missing. Like, remember to go back out between the vines to get your tripod back before you leave. When he unpacked his camcorder at home, he found the mount for his Manfrotto tripod still attached to his camera, but no tripod. You know, if only his wife had said, don't forget to go back and get your tripod, honey. All right, I have a review from Alistair Jenks coming up, but I truly hate hearing my voice after his gorgeous tone and accent, so I'm going before him this time. If you've been listening to the show for a long time, you know that I'm a huge fan of the company Wise, makers of a delightful and inexpensive security camera called WiseCam. Wise branched out a while ago to add the Wise motion sensor and proximity sensors called WiseSense. Think door, window, open, closing, sensing. You can stick them to all kinds of things, but that's kind of one of the obvious ones. The theme of Wise is to bring commodity hardware smart devices to us at incredibly low cost, but with really good software. This week, they began shipping pre-orders of their new Wise Bulbs. They have definitely done it again. But before I tell you about the Wise Bulbs, I want to tell you a story of one of the reasons I love this company so much. In November 2017, the internet was hit with a vulnerability called Crack, K-R-A-C-K. Bart told us all about it. 
It affected pretty much every Wi-Fi device on the internet, but a patched router, router would probably keep you safe, even if your devices inside your firewall were not patched. I bought my first WiseCam in January of 2018 on the advice of good friend and fellow Nocilla Castaway Joe LaGreca. I wrote to support at Wise to find out if they had patched their devices for the crack vulnerability. It was explained to me that since they buy the hardware from a commodity vendor, they don't have a lot of influence over the hardware and firmware of the device, which is where the crack vulnerability actually was. The tech support person promised to keep making noise to help get it fixed by their hardware vendor. I set up a schedule to bother Wise every few months. After several times of bothering them, I found out it was the same guy writing back to me each time, a gentleman named Max Stoneking. My little friend Max eventually told me that I didn't have to keep pinging him on a regular schedule because he had a post-it note on his monitor to remind him to let Allison know when crack got fixed. He told me he even kept the post-it note on his monitor when they moved offices. In January of this year, I had the pleasure of meeting Max in person at CES, and we chatted yet again about crack. Well, I have a big announcement to make. This week, I got an email from Max that I'd like to read to you. It says simply, Hey, I just got this update. We have implemented the crack fix as of firmware version point one zero eight for both PAN and WiseCam. Have a great day, Max. How awesome is that? I got to tell you, the more I deal with Wise, the better I like the company. I should mention that I chatted with uh, Joe LaGreca about this, and the WiseCam uh, the WiseCam one is a different firmware version, so you may not have the crack vulnerability fixed on that one. But like I said. It's really most important to have the, your router up to date, but uh, yeah, it would be nice to have the, the uh, cameras up to date as well. All right, with that fun story complete, let's take a look at the Wise Bulbs. Like my Wise Sense devices, I bought the Wise Bulbs via their early access program. We don't get special pricing or anything, but we get early delivery and we get special, a special discussion for them just for those willing to buy before the reviews are out makes me feel like one of the cool kids because we have our own private discussion forum. Traditionally, smart bulbs have been stupid expensive. I think we paid around $100 each for the Philips Color Hue bulbs ages ago. Even today, Philips sells the Hue White bulbs in a four-pack for $48. In contrast, the equivalent Wise smart bulbs, white ones, are $30 for a four-pack. That's 38% cheaper than Philips. Wise bulbs are Wi-Fi connected and so do not require any kind of hub, while the Hue bulbs do require uh, require a hub, which is an extra expense and complexity in a piece of junk hanging off your router. Now, the Wise bulbs are white, as I mentioned, but you can adjust the brightness and temperature using their app. The temperature goes from a colder, slightly blue hue to a warmer, slightly yellow tone. The thing that didn't surprise me at all was how easy it was to set up a Wise bulb. They really come through on the promise of ease of use of their software. The steps to connect a WiseBulb are as follows. In the app, tap the three dots to add a product. Select the device type. They even show you a picture so you know which one is which. Then you put your phone on your 2.4 gigahertz network, which is required by every single IoT device installer I've ever used. The next step is fun. You turn the lamp with the new bulb on and off three times. You'll know it's successfully gotten into pairing mode that way if the light slowly pulses. Now the Wise app will ask if it's found the correct 2.4 gigahertz network and it auto-fills the password, which is such a relief. Then you'll be told to connect to the Wi-Fi created by the bulb itself, which is a very common process. In maybe 20 seconds or so, you'll be asked to name the bulb. 
And now everybody knows the last step, right? Let's all sing along. Apply a firmware update. Now I'm mocking, but I really like that Wise comes out with pretty frequent firmware updates, like the one they did for the crack vulnerability. Anyway, there are often bug fixes, but just as often we get really cool new feature updates. For example, they just recently added the ability for their cameras to detect people. That way you can make rules on whether the camera kicks on for only people or for every possible disturbance that it views. You can even apply automation to other WISE devices based on whether a camera sees a person. While Hue bulbs work with all of the voice assistants, WISE works with Amazon and Google's voice assistant, but not HomeKit. Now, don't think I don't nag Max about this. I thought maybe I'd connect Amazon's voice assistant to my bulbs, but but as I started to add the skill, I got a pop-up asking permission to give Amazon access to all of my cameras. I have to say, I backed out and I quit the app. And that's, uh, that's Amazon. That's not even Google. I know my Ring cameras are now owned by Amazon, but I have a little bit of a peace of mind because all of my Ring devices are outside my house. Now, Wise can already see inside my house. I'm not excited about adding a second company to allow them to do that. In my experience with home automation using HomeKit, I don't really like automation where you have to talk to it anyway. Running around the house yelling at it to do things isn't nearly as enjoyable as having the house do what you want without you asking for it. I've got lots of automation that knows what I want without me having to talk to the house. The hue lights in the family room come on when I walk into the room. It turns red when the front door unlocks, and it turns green when the door locks again, and then back to white a few minutes later. My car even unlocks when I walk up to it. My garage door opening option shows on the screen in my car when I get near the house. I don't have to ask for it. My August lock unlocks when I walk up to it with my phone, and it locks when I walk away from the house. This is what home automation is supposed to be like. Wise bulbs can be trained to do our bidding too. There are three terms to know. Shortcuts, actions, and automation. It's easier to explain in reverse order. An automation is how you want the shortcut to be triggered. You can trigger via time of day or via an event. Now, events are triggered by devices. If you want motion sensing, you can use one of your wise cams, which have built-in motion detection and even to only do something when the camera sees a person, like we talked about. That way you don't have things happening when those rotten cats are scampering around at night. But what if the light is in a bedroom or some other room that kind of creeps you out to have a camera? You don't really want to have a camera everywhere. Enter the adorable $6 Wise motion sensor, which is the perfect tool for the job. You can choose to have this automation occur when the motion sensor detects motion, becomes clear, or has experienced one of those conditions for a certain amount of time. I think the idea of a certain amount of time is to eliminate the problem of the lights turning off if you don't move enough for just a few minutes. Now that you have an event, you can define what you want to have happen when that event occurs, and that's called actions. I put two bulbs in my den, and I grouped them with the name Al Den. The actions I chose was to turn them on and to set brightness to full and the color temperatures to the middle white. I mentioned that you can have either the the automation triggered by an event or by time of day, but it turns out you can't do both. In my den, I can have the lights come on when the motion sensor detects motion, but I can't say only do that in the daytime. I asked about this in the double secret exclusive early access forum for WISE, and within an hour or so, WISE Mike answered that they have built a conditions feature, which will allow us to limit the action to only certain times or days, and it's coming in one of the next updates. So yay! 
To recap, you build shortcuts that are triggered by events and cause an action through an automation. It's flexible, but it is a little bit to keep track of. Once you have the shortcut built, you can choose whether to have it show on the home screen of your app. In my example, I can now tap a single button and my Alden bulb group will turn on. I created a second shortcut to turn the lights off when the motion sensor hasn't detected motion for one minute. I'm probably not going to use those buttons, though, because it does it automatically. I got to say, I now have a trick, though, I need to remember to take the motion sensor out of my den or at least make it face a wall when we have company stay over since my den is also a guest room. The bottom line is that I really like the devices Wise makes. They're simple. They do what they say on the tin. They're inexpensive. The app is really good. They're doing security right, according to Steve Gibson of Security Now. And most importantly, the company itself is super responsive and is iterating quickly. I wish they were HomeKit compatible, but maybe my nagging will make that happen someday. If you're interested in all things WISE, check them out at WISE.com. That's W-Y-Z-E.com. This week, we have two rock stars to celebrate on the show. Frank Voss very generously decided to become a patron of the PodFeet podcast. He went over to PodFeet.com slash Patreon, chose a dollar amount per week to contribute to the show, and pledged his hard-earned dollars. Jason Harris went a different route. He went to podfeet.com slash PayPal and instead chose a single dollar amount to help support the work we do here. I like that there's different ways to contribute that's right for you and your family. And I really appreciate both of these guys and their efforts to keep the wheels running smoothly on the Podfeet podcast. Thank you so much for your generosity. Hi, Alistair Jenks here, back again with a first look at some fantastic new software. Years ago, my wife started a small business designing and selling cross-stitch patterns online. While she is the one with the artistic flair in our family, when it comes to putting together a printed product, that falls to my technical abilities. In the beginning, I had access to Adobe InDesign and used that to lay out the various documents required for each product. I was learning as I went, not least with the help of my brother, who is a professional graphic designer and long-time Adobe user. Roll forward some years and I had to let go of InDesign. Although I had access to Microsoft Word, I've never been a fan of it, so I turned to Apple's Pages. Pages just barely manages to do the job. In fact, I had to subtly change some of the design elements where Pages could not easily replicate the original InDesign capability. As a page layout application, Pages is at the very simple end of the capability scale. Imagine my joy when Serif, makers of Affinity Photo and Affinity Designer, both Adobe killers in their own right, released a public beta of Affinity Publisher. I joined the beta program right away to see how Publisher would fare. I have to say I hit a hurdle almost straight away. I have an absolute need to insert small images into table cells, and the early beta could not do that. I did try one other document type and was successful but decided I would wait until the final product was released. The beta program ran for nine months and concluded with the first general release on June 19th, 2019. As a beta tester, I was offered a healthy discount and, on my limited experience and my faith in other Affinity products, I took the offer. What follows is not so much a review as a telling of my early experience and joy in using the product, but I will give you an idea of the breadth of features at the end. With the final release version installed, I decided to tackle my image-containing table. At first, I couldn't work out how to do it. 
Then I found a way, but it seemed very inefficient. So I asked in the Affinity Online forum and was pointed to the almost obvious answer. It is in fact quite simple. What I was missing was that the menu command to insert the image file was on the file menu, a menu I always think of as containing only whole of document actions. Anyway, once I knew where it was, it was a cinch. It even has a handy keyboard shortcut. Having inserted 38 images into their respective cells, the next problem I had was scale. Each image was 2.2mm square, but I needed them bigger. With the move tool selected, I could click on an image and either drag or type in the new dimension. I settled on 4.4mm. But how could I efficiently scale the other 37 images? I started selecting all of them using the command key and clicking, but that seemed fussy. While I was doing that, I noticed the layers palette contained a single layer per image and, as I had inserted them one after the other, they were all together. A click on one end of the layer list and shift click on the other got me all 37 selected in a snap. The bounding box on the screen surrounded them all and the scale window now showed the total size of the group. Hmm. I hunted around and found a button on the context sensitive toolbar labelled transform objects separately. I was in business. Having clicked this I typed in 4.4mm and all of the images increased in size in unison. Further work included setting the alignments and insets of the cells in the table which was quite simple to achieve with the table tool active. The document I have been describing is the key or legend for the cross stitch pattern. However the final output also includes another page of stitching instructions. Because the second page is always identical within a given product line, I had taken to adding it only in the final PDF by means of Apple's preview app or PDF Pen Pro. You can imagine, any time I have to edit the key, I have to regenerate the PDF of that first page and then remember to re-add the second PDF page. Want to guess how often I forget that second step? Almost always. Having watched numerous video tutorials for Affinity Publisher, I set about solving this problem. The very same tool that I used to place an image in a table cell can also place other file types within your document. This includes other Affinity Publisher documents. I created a one-page publisher document with the instructions and saved it. Then, in my key document, I added a blank page and placed a copy of the instructions on that page, completely covering it. Then, through the resource manager window, I ensured that the placed document was linked, not embedded. This means when I edit a key and regenerate the PDF file, I don't need to remember to include the instructions as a separate step. Also, I can edit the instructions document and automatically get the results in all of the key documents for quick and easy regeneration. Just now I said I created a one-page publisher document with the instructions. How I did that illustrates another powerful feature of Publisher. I went to File, Open, then selected the PDF file of the instructions document I had generated from the original pages document. This gives you a publisher version of the PDF which, although in some respects was not structured like you might expect, was incredibly easy to copy elements from into a new document. This made it super easy to grab images, choose the right fonts and get things the right size. Now, you've heard about the killer app. Affinity Publisher is a very, very good page layout app that I think is very close in capability to Adobe InDesign certainly within all of the aspects that I understand. However, 
Affinity Publisher contains a killer feature, and it's a real doozy. At the top of the Affinity Publisher window is a row of three icons. The icons are those for Publisher itself, Affinity Photo, and Affinity Designer. Those are Serif's Pixel and Vector Editing apps respectively. Both Adobe matching apps in their own right. So why are their icons sitting in a Publisher toolbar? Is there integration between these apps? There is, but not like any you've seen before. We've known for a long time that Affinity Photo and Affinity Designer share a common file format and they can open each other's documents. Well, Affinity Publisher shares the exact same file format too, and this allows something quite remarkable. If you have Photo and or Designer installed, you can click on the icon and instantly switch to the toolset of that app within the Publisher window and with your Publisher document open. It's not just integration, it's more than that. It is all three apps in one. World-class typesetting and typography, world-class pixel editing, and world-class vector editing. Serif call this Studio Link. If you have a page layout with, let's say, a photo as the background, you can instantly switch to the Affinity Photo Persona, select the image, and add filters, paint on it, erase bits, or do whatever Affinity Photo can do, then instantly switch back to the Publisher Persona and carry on with managing your layout. If you have a vector-based logo, the same thing applies. Switch to the Designer Persona, tweak that curve, then switch back. The switching is instant. One feature offered by Designer is called Symbols. You select an object and from it create a symbol. You can then insert that symbol elsewhere in your document and they are linked. You edit any single copy and they all change in unison. This solved a problem for me with my cross-stitch documents. One of them contains a small panel with text that gets cut out from the printed copy and pasted onto an envelope. Because it's small, we can save paper by printing more than one to a page, typically four or six depending on the size. Having created one such text frame in Publisher, I switched to Designer Persona, created a symbol from the text frame, then duplicated it across the page. After switching back to Publisher Persona, I can edit the text in any of the copies and they all update. That removes any possibility of having inconsistencies between multiple copies on the page. Earlier, I said I had changed some original design elements when I switched from InDesign to Pages. I was able to reintroduce complex borders in my Publisher document, not because Publisher supports them, but because Affinity Designer does. In the recent Designer 1.7 release, an Appearance Manager was added which allows for multiple borders to be applied to a single shape. A quick switch to Designer Persona let me add a rectangle, apply the required multiple strokes, and then embed the text frame within it. To really appreciate the power of Studio Link, I encourage you to watch the Affinity Live keynote presented by Affinity at the launch of Publisher, where Studio Link was revealed. Link in the show notes. Earlier I promised you a feature rundown. I am going to blast through this list which is both long and also barely scratches the surface. I started with 40 bullet points from the Publisher webpage and whittled it down to a dozen. Double page spreads, live master pages including nested master pages, custom shaped text frames, advanced guides, grids and snapping, tables in custom table formats, text on a path, baseline grid, place Photoshop, Adobe Illustrator, PDF, JPEG, TIFF, PNG or Affinity files, end-to-end CMYK with spot colour support and Pantone library included, instant undo history, asset management, 
customizable keyboard shortcuts. You can purchase Affinity Publisher direct from Serif at affinity.serif.com or in the Mac App Store with a one-time purchase price of $49.99 US dollars. I am in love with this product because of the power it gives me to create exactly what I want while remaining very efficient. Thank you, Alistair. That sounds great. I uh, I did play with the beta of Affinity Publisher, but I'm not good enough at that type of tool. I don't know enough about it to actually be able to tell whether it was any good. So it was great to hear from you that it was as good as it looked. I had a lot of fun with it when I was playing with it. So maybe I'll just buy it just to keep these guys going. Love that stuff. Anyway, you guys see why I don't like hearing my voice after Alistair's? It's stressful. Just ask me and Sandy. Anyway, that's going to wind us up for this week. Uh, I really, really, really need your help. Do some recordings for me, please. There will be a show, but it might be a show that's like eight minutes long if people don't help me. I really need some help. Don't forget to send in dumb questions. You can send those in as well. Comments and suggestions. Ask me about how to record by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. If you want to follow my nonsense on Twitter, it's at podfeed. And remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You want to become a uh, Patreon uh, patron like uh, Frank did? That's podfeed.com slash Patreon. You want to join our Facebook group? Podfeed.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack community? Podfeed.com slash Slack. Lots of fun over there, especially the programming by Stealth Stuff and a lot of Security Bits conversations because Bart is in there. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, you can't do that this coming Sunday. You can't do it the Sunday after that. But on August 11th at 5 p.m. Pacific time, you can head on over to podfeed.com slash live and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.